Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. So I'd like to invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to, to grab it, open it up, and find your way back to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. If you're a first-time guest, I just want to welcome you to our church and to say thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, we've been in a series working our way from the beginning, and we're going to get to the end of the book of Hebrews. And I want to just kind of catch everyone up, uh, especially if you're new to this Sunday, kind of where we are at, because I think it'll help us better understand where our passage is trying to go this morning. The book of Hebrews was written to make a case that the ministry, the life, the word, and the actions of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his life, was superior to the ministry and the rules and the laws and the regulations of the old covenant, the old system, this this system that God had given to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, back in the days where they were in Egypt and he rescued them and delivered them out of Egypt and he he made some promises to them. He made a covenant with them and he gave them some regulations to live by. Then Christ comes and, and he comes now and it told us last week in chapter eight that he had come as one who had uh, been given a superior ministry and that he was going to be a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. And so this letter of Hebrews has been written to a group of people to make the case that although they had grown up looking at the Lord one way and they had been given this set of rules and instructions to follow, now in Christ there was a new way, a new covenant that he had given to not just the Israelites but to all people. This better covenant, better promises. And so over and over throughout the book of Hebrews there are these words, greater better, more, superior. These are all highlighting the fact that Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection accomplished something that in comparison to the laws, traditions and the leaders of the old system was incomparable. That he was better, he was greater. And so he is making this, this declaration, he's making this case so that those who would be maybe kind of longing for the days of old or maybe, maybe struggling to trust Christ alone could have confidence that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, this book is not just old words. This book is relevant for today been praying for us this week as we open it up and as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning that that it will kind of do in us what I think the author intended originally for it to do in the the lives of those first readers that those who read it would have a steadfast faith in Christ alone that word steadfast has been defined by one dictionary as a resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering that we would remain steadfast in our faith in Christ rather than turning to anything else, any form of man-made religion, any form of, uh, of, of works or this idea that I need to make myself presentable to God, that I need to make myself desirable to God in order for him to accept me and forgive me and to, to give me these promises and to give me a hope and to have this assurance that I stand rightly before him. I think this was an issue back then because there was a false sense of security in that old system. 
because there was a false sense of control. I don't know about you, but I know about me, I like control. I like to know where things are headed. I like to know how it's all gonna end up. I want to be able to play a role in that. And yet every time I try to get in there and work alongside the Lord to to determine what's gonna happen and make it come to pass, I mess it up. Can anybody relate with that? So anytime there's this idea of like, okay, this is what I do in order to be a good Christian. This is what I do in order to be a good person. This is what I do in order to have a, a, a God have a good opinion of me. Anytime I think of it that way and I begin to work, there's something that draws me because I can check a box. I did this and I did this and I did this and therefore God loves me and God accepts me because I did these things. And the reality is that's not true. That's a false sense of security. And this audience who had grown up to understand this old way of living, this old system that God had given them, that was a good system for a time, but it was never meant to be the permanent solution to the problems. By trusting in that rather than the gospel, they were settling for a copy of what had already come in a better way. And I think the same is true for you and I, that you and I can settle for something that is sub, like, subpar, It's inferior to what Christ wants to give us. We can settle for a form of religion, a form of Christianity that we we think is going to be what's gonna really fulfill us and make us happy and yet we go through the motions and yet we don't sense God's presence. We don't sense his approval. We don't sense his pleasure. It's because we're trying to do it differently than he intended. And that is the intention of this verse and these verses in Hebrews chapter nine to try to help us see that Christ is better He's superior and the ministry that he came to do is better than the ministry that had led them to that point. Would you stand with me as we read our passage this morning? We're not gonna read all of chapter nine, although we're gonna work our way through it. We're gonna read the first 14 verses out of Hebrews chapter nine, starting in verse one. If you're ready to hear from the Lord, say ready. Ready. This is the word of the Lord. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up and in the place of the first room, which is called the holy place, were a lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had a gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were seated above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come 
in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Do you believe that's true? It absolutely is. You may be seated. Father God, we just, we ask now in these next few moments that you would give us understanding of this portion of this amazing book. And God, as it continues to make comparisons and tries to make a case for why your ministry in your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, the gospel is greater than anything else that we could strive for. Let us see it. Let us hear it. Let us believe it. Let your word do its work in our lives this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Man, three observations I just, that have been kind of coming to the top of my mind that I want to share as we work through. There's, there's 14 more verses I'm going to kind of mention. We're going to work through this entire chapter. But again, last week, we've been seeing all the way through the book of Hebrews, this comparison of things that were very significant in the, the religion of the Israelites, in the old covenant, these rules and regulations, these people that had been leaders who had been leading them to obey God. It was a way to, to not only kind of make them uh, approachable and, and set apart as God's people, but it was to try to help them, rein them in to live differently until the appearing of the Messiah. And so throughout this, this letter now written after Jesus Christ had come, had lived his life, had, had spoken the words of truth, had given his life on a cross, had been put in a grave and rose back to life three days later, proving that he was God and securing the payment for all of our sins. This author now is trying to show them that you've been wait, you were waiting for this Messiah. You were waiting for someone to come that was going to be the fulfillment of all the promises you read about in the Old Testament scriptures. And he has come. And let me show you now how he was greater than what you had put so much hope in and trust in before. And the whole purpose of that is so that we would truly live by faith in Christ, that we would truly trust him with our entire lives, that we wouldn't look to anything else, be distracted by anything else, that we would place our full dependence on him. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that the ministry regulations of the old covenant were symbols given to prepare Israel to perceive and receive Christ as their great high priest. In the first seven verses of our text this morning, we see the description of some people and some furniture and some of the practices of the first covenant. I love how he goes in verse five, he says, we don't have enough time to talk about all this right now. He's getting somewhere with his point as he's writing this letter. But his audience would have been very familiar with all of these pieces of furniture, all these people, all these practices that were tied to the old covenant. That old covenant we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God said, you're gonna be my people and I'm gonna be your God. If you obey these laws, if you follow my ways, I will bless you, I will protect you, I will go out before you. But if you turn from me, if you turn to other gods, if you turn away from these practices, if you stop obeying, I will remove that from you. And so they lived their life constantly trying to follow these things. Now, when we hear it, that Jesus' ministry was better or greater. It's not to say that the old covenant was bad. It was just never meant to be the solution. 
It was never meant to be the thing that we'd put all our hope in. And we see this highlighted in verses eight through 10. There are three key statements here that we see. Would you look at it again? Verse eight, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was, was still standing. This tabernacle was this place of worship. That was a, it was a movable place of, per, uh, of worship that the, the people were given instructions. Moses was given instructions by God on all the different parts of, that it was going to be constructed by and what it was going to do. And it was in the middle of the camp of the Israelites as they were wandering around until they got into the promised land. The tabernacle was right in the middle and they would put all their tribes and all the tents and everything around it. And this was the place of worship. And there was different places in that, in that tabernacle. There was a, a room, the first one, where the, the priests would go in and they would fill these the daily ministries. Every day they'd go in and they would have work to do in there. But there was one, another room, the holy place or the most holy place or the holy of holies where this Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And this is the place where the presence of God would dwell among the people of Israel. And you couldn't just go in there. You couldn't just go in there and pray and, and, and offer sacrifices and talk to God. No, one time a year, one person out of all of Israel, after following a very specific prescribed way to clean themselves and certain clothes to put on and certain sacrifices to be made, could enter into that room to offer a sacrifice for himself and for all of Israel on behalf of the sins that they had committed in ignorance, the sins they had even, the way they offended God and didn't even know it. One time a year, one person. That wasn't God's ultimate plan. His plan was to make it to where you and I could go to the throne of grace right now and be in the presence of God. We could talk to him and know that he hears, he's near and he cares. And so as long as that tabernacle stood up, as long as that system was still in place, it just showed us that the solution hadn't come yet. The final plan had not come to pass. As long as that old system was in place, direct access from man to God had not been restored. Look at verse nine then, it goes on to say this, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. All these different parts of the Old Testament system, all, the Old Covenant, all these different parts, the lampstand and the, the table that had these presentation loaves, the bread of presents, all of these were symbols. They were symbols that were designed to prepare the people for Christ because Christ would come and he would be a more perfect fulfillment of what all of these represented. The lampstand that was in the place of the, the, the holy place, that first room was to be constantly lit. It was supposed to light that area that would have no windows in there. It was supposed to, to provide light so that the, the priest could do their work. Well, Jesus would come to be the light of the world. There was a table in there that had 12 loaves of unleavened bread. These were called the presentation loaves. They would be in there and every uh, seven days they would be swapped out for fresh loaves. And those pieces of bread represented God's provision for them in the wilderness of manna, but also represented his provision and his constant, he was giving them sustenance. He was constantly meeting their need. He was there. Jesus would come to be the bread of life. There was an altar of incense 
where they would, they would burn incense to be a fragrant offering to God. And on the day of atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would, they would let that incense fill that room. Instead, it said if that incense did not fill the, the most holy place on the day of atonement, the high priest should not go in there lest they die. It's just a symbol of, of Christ being the one who would offer prayers on our behalf as he offers a high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Inside that most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that, there was a lid called the mercy seat. Romans chapter three, we see that Christ's work is described as the one that, that was done on the mercy seat. He was the one that would establish and he would, he would reign there victorious over sin and death. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, underneath that mercy seat was a copy of the law, those two stone tablets that God had given the 10 commandments to Moses on. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill all the law and prophets. There was another jar of manna. Again, we've already talked about that, that Jesus is the bread of life. And then they had Aaron's staff that had budded. There's a story in the Bible where God is going to determine which of the tribes would would work, would be identified as those who would carry out the priestly duties. There were 12 tribes in Israel. So which tribe, which people were gonna be it? And there was this staff that Aaron had, Moses' brother. And they would go around and, and walk around the tribes. And when you get in front of the tribe and there's this just dry staff, this piece of wood starts to bud, not attached to a tree, begins to have flowers on it. That will be the indication of who I am selecting to be the line that's going to fulfill these priestly duties. It's a miraculous thing. Landed on the tribe of Levi. It's put in the Ark of the Covenant after God instructs them to do that. Jesus came to be the great high priest. All of these things that were part of the religious system, all these symbols that were part of the religious practices that they would do in the old way, Christ came as a perfect fulfillment of all those things. They were all there to prepare them for when Christ came, they would see him and recognize him. I was reminded this week of how this kind of idea of preparing something that we don't see for something in the future can be clearly illustrated in the, the movie Karate Kid. <laughs> Daniel is there working with Mr. Miyagi and what's, what's he told to do? Wash the car, paint the fence, sand the deck. He's there to get trained, right? He's being bullied at school. He wants to learn karate. Mr. Miyagi is supposed to teach him these things. He's like, you're just using me for free labor. Waxing your cars, painting your fence, sanding your deck. This has nothing to do with karate. Daniel didn't see that there was actually a purpose for that, right? And when he began to instruct him on karate, he says, show me paint the fence. I know you want me to demonstrate. It's not gonna happen. (laughs) But the former instruction was designed to prepare them for the future need. The Old Testament system of religion, it served a purpose. When he says there's a better covenant, it doesn't mean that old one was bad. It's just saying God now has expanded it. He's going to fulfill it perfectly in Christ. And he's going to extend that offer beyond the Jewish people to all who believe. But all those symbols, when we see them, and then we see Christ live out as the light of the world, the bread of life, the great high priest, we go, that's what he's always been pointing us towards. This is what his plan was. Verse 10, it says here that 
all those pieces of furniture and all those practices, they were for physical regulations and only dealt with food and drink and various washings imposed until the proper time. All of those things atoned for, covered sins, but they only dealt with the external. They did not deal with the internal problems that are inside of us. They were temporary. There was still an internal need that needed to be cleansed. I love the picture that Pastor Justin showed us last week of the Band-Aid. This old covenant, this old, these old regulations were designed to be a Band-Aid. They were to cover that wound and, and prevent sin from continuing to come in and, and, and cause its pain, cause its trouble. And yet there was still a wound underneath that needed to be cleansed. That system was not designed to cleanse the wound. It was just to cover it. Christ cleanses it. And so he's, he's going through here and he's speaking to this audience. He's saying, hey, all this stuff, all of this religion, all these practices that I gave you that you've, you've been doing and following and, and living out and that you put a lot of trust in. Christ has come and he is a better ministry. He has a better covenant, better promises. Follow Christ. Be steadfast on him. Build your life on him and not the former things. Second thing I want us to see this morning is that the symbols then of this new covenant were given to settle our souls and stir our anticipation of a returning savior. These new promises that are referred to here are secured by better sacrifice, a more perfect sacrifice. His blood and his body become the symbols of that new covenant. It says in verse 11, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. That's an amazing statement. His body and his blood would become the new symbols of this new covenant. Today, we get the opportunity to participate together in communion. And as you came in, you got hopefully one of these cups. If not, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. We'll get one of those to you. But this little wafer is a, just a symbolic representation that Christ came physically to live a life so that he could pay a, the physical price of death that is required for sin. And the juice that reminds us of the blood that was shed that he actually he actually died on that cross. He didn't just get beat up and just face persecution. He actually gave his life sacrificially for us. Matthew 26, we see him institute this new covenant. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is telling them just before he's about to be betrayed, just before he's about to be led through a, a, a trial, just before he's about to be crucified on a Roman cross outside the city. He's saying that all that's about to happen is to fulfill this new covenant that I'm gonna begin to give through me, give you my body. My blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is significant. It says here, if you look down with me in your Bibles, verse 22, it says this, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Amen. 
there have been a lot of bloodshed since the institution of the old system. In fact, there have been a lot of bloodshed because of sin since the garden, since the very beginning. And yet here Christ comes, not to just fulfill the role of high priest, just to continue to offer animals as an atonement, as a covering for past sins. No, he comes to give his life as a perfect sacrifice and get shed his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of all people for all time. There are two main reasons why Jesus was a better sacrifice, why his blood is better than the blood of animals that had been shed on behalf of sin. The first is that it was once and for all. Look what it says in verse 26. Actually, we'll start in verse 24. It says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time, at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Thanks be to God. Jesus' sacrifice was better because it was a once and for all sacrifice. It was eternal, not temporary. It did not have to be repeatedly given. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of all men. Every sin in this room, every sin that has been committed, every sin that is currently being committed, every sin that will be committed, he's already paid for through his perfect blood. It doesn't have to continue to be offered. When he uttered the words on the cross in John 19, 30, it is finished. You know what he meant? It is finished. There's nothing more that needs to be added. There's nothing more that needs to be done. But his sacrifice was also better because it can actually cleanse the inside of us. Look back at verse nine. It says, these were symbols for the present time, which the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. This has been one of the key phrases as I've been studying this chapter that just keeps jumping out to me. All the the sacrifices that were done in the past, in the old system, they they could take care of the external. There were some practices and some regulations that could help cleanse you externally if you had done something wrong or had done something unclean. You could become clean externally, but it could not deal with the sin inside of us. It says it couldn't cleanse our conscience. But then in verse 14, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. His sacrifice was better because it can actually clean us inside, not just outside. And this is so important. I read a story this week about a man named Albert Speer He was a confidant of Adolf Hitler during World War II. He was credited with keeping the Nazi factories humming until the end of the war. And he was one of the 22 people that were put on trial for war crimes at Nuremberg. Out of the 22 people that were put on trial for war crimes, Albert was the only one to admit his guilt. Because of that, he was found guilty and spent 20 years in a prison in Berlin. And after he was released, he wrote several books 
And as at one point interviewed on Good Morning America, the interviewer asked this question, you have said that the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? The look on Spears' face was wrenching as he responded. I served a sentence of 20 years and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime and I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning of cleaning my conscience. The interviewer pressed the point. You really don't think that you're able to clear it totally? Spear shook his head. I don't think it'll be possible. For 35 years, Spear had accepted complete responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought cleansing all to no avail. I think there are a lot of people both inside the church and outside the church, those who profess faith in Christ and those who who don't profess faith in Christ, who daily, every single moment are dealing with a dirty conscience. No matter how much they can try to justify their behavior, no matter how much they can try to make it seem like this is a good thing, inside of them because they are created in God's image. There's something inside of us that knows that we feel guilt and shame for our, our wrongdoings, the ways that we have offended, the, way, the sins that we have done. We can try to mask that and numb ourselves and cover that up. But there's a lot of people that are walking around with this guilt and shame. And sometimes we can come to our senses and we can try to make atone for it. We can try to make amends for it. We can do all these things to try to make up for the guilt and the shame we feel for the sinful choices we have made. And yet we still know we carry this around inside of us. Without Jesus, we cannot clear our conscience, but the blood of Christ can. It says this in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. This truth should settle our soul. It tells us in verse seven that there were limitations to the sacrifices offered by the high priest because those sacrifices were just atoning for the sins committed by him and the people in ignorance. Basically, Lord, we've offended you. You are a holy God. We are an unholy people. We've offended you in ways we don't even know. So this is what this sacrifice is. But it wasn't dealing with those premeditated known sins on the inside because that sacrifice was coming later in Christ. Christ's death paid the price for all sin. Ephesians 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So I have a question. What would you give to have a clean conscience today? No more guilt, no more shame, no more embarrassment, No more fear being exposed. I got good news for you. Whatever you would give, that price has already been paid. The gospel redeems. It is the antidote to shame and guilt. 
And when we receive it, it will result in worship. In Christ, because of what his blood has done for us and his resurrection from the dead, we now don't have to live in shame, mistakenly think that we're unredeemable, that we're broken and this is just who we are and that our identity is our sinful choices and our mistakes and our shortcomings and the ways we failed, our friends, our families and ourselves. No, he says, I give you a new identity. You're my child, you're an heir, you're a prince or princess of heaven. And there is an inheritance waiting for you that can't be touched by anything here on earth. And there's no one that can lob an accusation against you because I've already covered that with my blood. You don't have to live with shame. You don't have to live with guilt. Oh, I made a mistake. I feel bad for that. Those are good things that should drive us to the cross and to say, Lord, I confess my sin and I need your forgiveness because I have made a mistake, but you are holy, you are good. So that truth should settle my soul because the reality is he is returning. Look what it says here. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This truth should stir our anticipation for his return. This is gonna shock you, but when I was growing up, I was a little bit rambunctious. I used to get chronic uh, ear infections. And so when I was a kid, I couldn't hear very well. So I talked really, really loudly and I had a really high voice. And if you don't believe me, my aunt and uncle, Al and Kathy Rossi attend this church. They can attest to it because they've known me my entire life. I was active. I was, I talked all the time. I remember getting in trouble in kindergarten for talking during nap time. I mean, I remember that vividly. And I've heard these five fearful words said to me on more than one occasion, wait till dad gets home. <laughs> right? I'd done something wrong, had not been following what I was supposed to do. And so the promise, the expectation would be, there would be some discipline when dad gets home. I think there's some of us that are living with that fear of, you know, what happens when I die or what happens when I stand before the Lord and will I have done enough good things so that when I'm before the Father, the heavenly Father, will I, will I be good enough? Do you know the blood of Christ and the good news of the gospel changes fear into anticipation? It goes from wait till dad gets home, oh no, to wait till dad gets home, oh yeah. The desire for, for us from Christ is that we would have an anticipation to see him because it says when he comes, he's gonna bring salvation. That doesn't mean that right now, if we've placed our faith in the gospel, we're not saved. It just means that he has justified us. He is now sanctifying us. He's changing us as because we are saved. And one day he's gonna come and he's going to complete that salvation by removing that old sinful nature. And we're gonna live with him forever without that. Amen? 
That's the anticipation we have to look for if we are covered in the blood, if we've been walking after him. But if we have not received Christ as our savior, if we have not placed our faith in the gospel, if we're still trying to live a life that's based on my good works or pursuing the things I think are gonna make me happy and walking apart from him, we don't have that assurance of what's gonna happen. And we're gonna have to do business with what the word of God says. And so it says here, and so Christ, having offered, been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The bread and the cup, the symbols of the new covenant, remind us of what Christ has accomplished and that he is coming back to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We're gonna go ahead and begin to, to just kind of prepare our hearts and minds for that. If you haven't received the elements when you came in, if you just slip your hand up quietly, our men are prepared to come along and just bring those to you. But I, I'm not done with my message. I have one more point. This might be the most important part of the message today. Because this is where we take the truth of what God's word said, which is, the old system wasn't bad. It just wasn't the solution. It was designed to prepare us to recognize Christ. And now he's given us a new covenant and these symbols settle our hearts and stir our anticipation. But here's what I want us to remember. The key to experiencing the blessing of a covenant has always been faith. It's always been faith. It's never been works. Faith has always been the worship the Lord desires most. I think there's some of us this morning here that maybe you came in this morning and you're just carrying around guilt and shame. Poor choices, sinful choices, bents that you just keep tripping over. And you so desperately wanna be set free from those, you wanna have victory over those, but they seem to just keep ripping you down. And you come in this morning extremely discouraged. You're asking for help. You, you're, you're sensing that, that disconnection from God. You feel lost and, and you don't know where to go. You don't know which way is up, which way is down. You feel that shame and guilt. But there's another possible attitude that you could have this morning. And that is that, hey, I've been pretty good. I'm good enough been coming to church, been participating, I've been serving. And yeah, I'm doing all the activities that I think are going to make God happy, but yet I haven't actually been walking with him, spending time with him, listening for him, trusting him, placing my faith in him. I have all the externals of Christianity covered, but internally I'm actually not close to him. Do you know that's possible? Warren Wiersbe said, beware of trusting anything in your spiritual life that it's made with hands. And so this is my hope this morning as we turn our attention to the Lord's table. I want every single one of us to leave in one of two ways. And this is true for you if you've been a long time attender or if today's your very first Sunday, this is what I hope will happen in your heart this morning. You will leave either with a reaffirmed assurance that is rooted in Christ alone. 
that you are the one that's sitting here going, man, I just, I know myself. I know how messed up I am. And okay, I'm gonna work hard to get myself clean. And then maybe, you know, I'll work things out with God. And, but I just, right now, I, I'm, I'm a mess. I want, you to, I want you to leave here going, your assurance that Christ loves you has nothing to do with what you're gonna go do after today's service. It needs to be rooted in the fact that what he's already done for you on the cross. You can stand here before him holy and blameless without condemnation. We need that assurance. It's not about what we've ever done. It's about what he has done for us. And if you are this morning going, I've just been carrying this burden and this guilt and I haven't confessed it to anybody. If people really knew me, they wouldn't even let me in the doors of this church. I can tell you, it's not true. This is not a place where you come when you're healed. This is a place where you come to hear about the one who does the healing. And we will walk alongside you. We will come alongside you as one sinner telling other sinners, this is where you find hope. This is where you find forgiveness. If that's you this morning, don't carry that guilt and shame out of here. That's not your identity if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're like, I have never replaced my faith in Jesus Christ. Today's the day. You can literally walk out of here with that, that feeling. It's like, I'm not carrying that burden anymore. And after this service, there'll be people up here that would love to pray with you whether that's to deal with an unconfessed sin, deal with a burden, or to just talk about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. But I'm also concerned for those who are right now sitting here going, I'm, I'm pretty good actually. See, the second way that I want you to leave today, if it's not with a reaffirmed assurance rooted solely in Christ, is that I hope you leave today with your self-assurance rocked. I hope that you walk away today going, you know, I've been kind of putting all my, my confidence in the fact that I, I know the scripture and I can quote scripture and I can serve and I can give and I can do, but I actually haven't been giving my whole life to Christ. I am not following him. He's not my number one priority. That is just as dangerous as the person trapped in guilt and shame. Just as dangerous as the person that has been struggling with their sin. It's the person that thinks that I'm doing pretty good, but I'm not actually following Christ. I'm just following the rules of Christianity. That is not okay. And perhaps today the Holy Spirit is saying, he's talking to you. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying, you're, you're doing a really good job playing the game, but I, will you give me your heart? Will you truly lay down those pursuits and truly re- lay down those things and just follow me? I got hope for you as well. The blood of the lamb can deal with that pride, can help remove that self-assurance and allow you to be built solely on Christ. The author of Hebrews chapter nine is trying to say, There've been a lot of things that God has given us as tutors, as things to try to instruct us and prepare us so that when Christ comes, we will live fully for him. Today is the day to consider, am I living for him? Let's pray and then the team will come up. We will sing a song to prepare ourselves for communion. Father God, we just... We come to you now, we, we look at this passage that talks about the reality that there's a lot of things that you see in our lives that are distractions, whether it's guilt and shame or whether it's pride and arrogance, God, all these things can 
distort and take away from what it is that you would have for us. Yeah, Lord, there's nothing that we can do in our physical bodies that can give us a clean conscience, that can allow us to stand before you knowing that the work has been done and that our lives are completely built on you. We can't just earn that. We have to receive that. So that's my prayer this morning, God, that we would hear that there has been something done for us that's so impressive, so magnificent. We'd be foolish to try to do it another way. And yet sometimes, Lord, we're discouraged by our our sins. We're discouraged by our poor choices. God, I pray that you would set those people who who are working through emotions like that free in the hope that the blood of Christ has paid for it all. And for those of us, Father, who struggle with the sin of arrogance, self-reliance, that we profess faith, but we're really just living life on our own. We're trying to live the Christian life apart from you. Would we be convicted this morning by the words in John 15 that says that you are the vine, we are just a branch, and that apart from you, we can do nothing. There's nothing good, nothing spiritual that can be produced in our life with our own efforts. It's only when we are completely connected and following you. God, would you help us to deal with that sin and that pride today. God, thank you for the blood. Thank you for your life. Help us to never take that for granted. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I want to invite you to prepare the elements. We're going to start with the bread. We get our instructions from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the apostle Paul says this, says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now the cup. Paul goes on to say in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul concludes by saying, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes pray with me father god thank you for that promise thank you for the hope of that promise god thank you for the blood help us to live today fully assured in you and you alone we pray this in your son's beautiful name